I once heard a woman say that the difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? We often think and act like we're bigger than we really are. This is better known to us as the evil disease called pride. Pride is something that all of us struggle with to some degree, and it's something that you and I can certainly achieve in this lifetime. We can be proud. We can achieve that objective. But humility is something we must continually pursue in this life. It's not something that we can totally achieve in this life, but something that we vigorously pursue. And that's why no one can come up here on stage and say, I am proud to report that I am now humble. (laughs) You can't say it. You can't say I just wrote a book entitled Humility and How I Achieved It. (laughs) You don't do it. It's repugnant. It's foolish. All we can do is say that by God's grace, I am a proud person pursuing humility. I think it's helpful for us in dealing with pride to reflect on how small we really are. We get a sense of this when we think about how we're just one of six or seven billion people around the world. That at any given time, millions of people are sleeping, millions of people are at church or at school or at work. At the same time, when across the globe, one woman is is passing away and breathing her last breath, on the other side of the globe, a new baby is breathing his or her first breath. The earth is huge. And then when we look at the whole universe that the earth is in, we see that there are planets millions of light years away that are far bigger than our planet. Well, consider further how small you are by your limitations. Here's a test. Consider all the things you've done in the last 24 hours that require the assistance or contributions of others. Did you sleep indoors? Did you travel in a vehicle, use electricity, wear clothing you didn't make, eat food you didn't kill or grow, get water from a faucet? Would any of that have been possible without the involvement of countless of other people? Well, perhaps you do have a garden in your backyard and you make all your own clothes. And you'd say you're rather self-sufficient at that. Then perhaps consider sleep. It's a humbling activity, isn't it? For those of us who live until we're 80 years old, we'll have slept a total of at least 25 years of our lives. That's 25 years where we just lay down flat on a mattress, submit to unconsciousness so we don't break down. Certainly shows how weak we are. And think about the process of getting ready for bed each night. You go to the sink, you brush your teeth. If you're close to a dental appointment, you might even spend a little extra time and get the floss out and dust it off and try to, try to fix your teeth in one night. You wash your face, scrub all the junk off that. You adjust the air conditioner just right to your comfort, and then when your spouse readjusts it, you go back again and (laughs) readjust it one more time when she's sleeping. (laughs) Then you sit on your bed and get get your pillows just right. Then finally, you lay down horizontally flat on your mattress, tucking yourself in under your blankets, and maybe you turn to your side, and then hopefully for the next seven or eight hours, you lie there unconscious, quiet, I mean, have you ever considered how silly that looks? That at any given time in Dubai, we have thousands of people just laying horizontally flat <laughs> on a square box, springs and mattress, just tucked underneath our blankets waiting for the morning. <laughs> Each night, as we get ready for sleep, we are reminded that we are not self-sufficient. 
that we are not God. Even our three-year-old daughter Eliza is aware of this fact. The other day she prayed for her sister as she napped in her car seat. She said, Dear God, you're awake right now, so please take care of baby Nora because she is sleeping. Amen. (laughs) See, we are small creatures. We are absolutely dependent creatures. Even my daughter Eliza knows so. And yet we act like we're big, don't we? Augustine once said that pride is the mother of all sin. That pride is pregnant with all kinds of sin. Yet nothing builds a church like humility. And nothing will break up a church faster than pride. Because Redeemer is doing well and because we're growing and because God is doing some great things, at any point in time we could be undone by pride. For James says in James 4, 6, a very scary verse, he says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He takes proud people and he takes proud churches down. I mean, no one in their right mind would wake up in the morning and say, God, I dare you to fight me and resist me and try to stop me. We would never do that. And yet when we're proud, the Bible says that we actually put ourselves against God. We put ourselves in opposition to the holy maker of the universe. Now this is super important for us as individuals and for us as a church as we are now seven or eight weeks into this mighty work. We need God to be for us, don't we? We need him to be with us. And it's a terrifying thought that we could be opposed to God because of our pride. Now, if pride leads to being opposed to God, then conversely, humility is the mother of all joy. The Bible says that God will exalt the humble, that God will exalt the lowly. And that's what Paul's going to tell us this week, that humble people are the only people who can be truly joyful. If you will, turn with me to the book of Philippians as we continue our study in this wonderful book written by the Apostle Paul. If you turn to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin in actually in verse 6. We're going to start there, and then we'll go back and take a look at the first five verses at the end. Think if the Bible was a mountain range. This would have to be one of the two or three highest peaks. This is the ultimate revelation because we have perhaps the most complete picture in the New Testament of who Jesus is and what he did. Look at verse 6 through 11. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We see in this passage three things, three things 
that we'll look at today. One is Christ's humble life. Then we'll look at Christ's humble death. And then finally, our humble response. So first, we see Christ's humble life in verses 6 through 7. We see that Jesus, being in the very nature of God, came to the earth as a man. He was not merely a man, though, or an angel, or a prophet, but God in the flesh. Nothing less than that. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says of Christ that he was the image or the exact replica of the invisible God. And in Hebrews, the author says, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And furthermore, Paul says in Colossians as well, that Jesus is God in the flesh, and not only that, but that by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. If you're new to the church um, and you're new to teaching about Jesus, or perhaps you've heard of a few things, I wanted to clarify one misconception that you need to know that when the Bible calls Jesus the Son of God, does not mean that somehow God, the Father, had relations with Mary. That's not at all the case. Jesus is God's eternal spiritual Son, the very outshining of His glory, the exact representation of His being. Jesus is all that God is, and God the Father has given God the Son all that He has. And notice what else in verse 6, that being in the very nature God Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So though still God, what Paul is telling us is that he did not consider it as something to clutch, something to hold on to. He existed as God, but he refused to cling to that favored position. He refused to cling to all the rights that he had and honors that went with it. He was willing to give them up. That's the idea here. And verse 7 says, Not only did he give these up, but he made himself nothing. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to be God and becoming man. He didn't somehow stop being divine when he became human. The text doesn't say having been God, he instead became human. It says that while he is God, while being in the very nature God, he became human as well. And so in this divine mystery, there was never an exchange of deity For humanity, the eternal Son remained fully God and added his manhood. So he is by nature fully God and fully man. This phrase, he made himself nothing or emptied himself, refers to the refusal to use what was rightfully his. Refusal to cling to the advantages and rights of God. Can you imagine? God owns everything, He can do everything. He has a right to everything, and yet here Jesus set aside his rights and some of his divine attributes and privileges. It's not that he didn't possess them, but that he did not access them continually. While on earth he was still God, he was worshipped as God, he declared himself as God in his ministry, he forgave sins as only God could do. Incidentally, as I thought through this passage this week, I was reminded that one of the reasons we know 
as Christians that the Bible is true is that you and I would never have written it this way, would we? We would never have invented a humble God. One of the most distinguishing features of the God of the Bible is humility. And Paul is saying that Christ's death on the cross is the most humble event and act in the history of the world. Every other major religion at its core has man trying to work his way up to God, trying to earn his way up to God, trying to do enough good works to get to God. But in our Christian faith, we see that Jesus came down to man. That there's nothing that we could do in and of ourselves, but by God's grace, he sent Christ. And how does he do it? How does he send him? He sends him into an obscure part of the world, born as a baby to a virgin teenager who shouldn't be pregnant in a barn in a small town called Galilee to an impressed people at the time called the Jews. The Bible tells us that Jesus, in doing this, embraced our worst nightmare. All the things you and I fear the most, Jesus Christ volunteered for it and walked right in to it. Isaiah 53, read earlier by Tom Samuel, not only says he became human, but that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to. That he was like one who men hid their face from. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He became a nobody. He became what we fear most in our lives, don't we? He was despised and rejected as a nobody. Well, think further with me about all that Jesus gave up in becoming a nobody, a lowly servant. He gave up his heavenly glory in coming to the earth. He gave up the worship of angels and all the shining brilliance of the glories of heaven for the earth. The Almighty Son of God appeared on earth as a helpless baby. Have you considered what this means? A baby unable to do anything more than lie down, maybe sit up, wiggle, cry, scream, make funny noises, needing to be fed and changed, needing to be taught everything, how to speak, how to walk, unable to do anything on their own, completely dependent on others. And yet Christ entered our world in that way. And I love to think about this. He, Christ also gave up his personal riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, He became terribly, or, sorry, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. He became terribly poor in this world. Terribly poor. Imagine he owned everything. He created everything. And yet he came to the world having to borrow everything. Didn't he? Think about this list. Christ, in coming into the world, he had to borrow a place to be born. And it was merely a barn. He had to borrow a place to lay his head. He didn't even have a home. Many nights we read that he even slept on the Mount of Olives. He had to borrow a boat to cross the little sea of Galilee. He had to borrow a boat to preach from. He had to borrow an animal to ride into the city when he was being triumphantly welcomed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He had to borrow a room for the Passover because he didn't even have a house in Jerusalem. He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. 
the only person who had a right to everything wound up with nothing. No advantages, no privileges. He came into the world as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords, as God in human flesh, with nothing. At any moment in time, he could have blasted his enemies off the face of the earth with merely the breath of his mouth. But he didn't. It would have been one thing for God to become man. That's humbling enough. But for God to become man, and for man to think that Jesus was only a man, is indeed a humbling thing. I don't know if someone has ever thought less of you for some reason, perhaps for an unfounded reason, and because of that, your reputation was hurt by something untrue. And you did everything you could to clear your name. If we were in Christ's position, don't you think at some point we would have screamed and said, I want my rights, that's enough. Do you know who I am? And we would have blown over a tall building or something, or created something, or fought back. We, we, we would have told people who we are. Obviously, Christ was clear that he was God. But he suppressed some of these attributes in humility. And they treated Jesus like he was less than human and a criminal. But he remained humble for our sakes and for God's glory. He lived a humble life. Not only that, though, he lived a, or suffered a humble death. Suffered a humble death. Look at verse 8. Not only was Christ humble in this life, but we also see that he was humble in his death. Look at it. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now somewhere short of the cross, we would have said, stop. Somewhere short of being mocked and dragged half naked through the city of Jerusalem with a cross on his back, you would have thought he would have said, stop. But he doesn't do it. He became small. Jesus became utterly small for you so that before he dies, before he will be cosmically ignored, he says, I want them to have the glory that I had before the world began. And he emptied himself of glory so that you and I could be filled. But Paul says, not just death, did you catch the last statement? Even, even death on a cross. The word even, word even calls attention to the shocking feature of his death. It was the ultimate humiliation, the bottom, the end of the line. Not just death, but death on a cross. Crucifixion, excruciating, embarrassing, degrading, painful, and humiliatingly cruel. See, in the first century, followers of Christ didn't wear crosses around their neck. It was a symbol of death. It was something to be feared. When they did a a crucifixion, they chose the most crowded streets, the places where everybody gathered in the city, and they would crucify these criminals in front of everyone to see, to instill fear in those who would see. It was a death fit only for slaves, only for criminals. It's the ultimate human degradation, hanging in the sky, stark naked, before the watching world, with nails driven through your hands, nails driven through your feet. And there he was, the Son of God, the one who created the whole universe. 
Colossians says Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his mouth. So that when they arrest Jesus and grab him with their hands, hands that Jesus not only created but sustains the power they use to grab him. And with the muscles that he gives power to, they stretch their hands back and slap him across the face. They use their mouths to spit on him, mouths that he created to glorify God and sing praises to him. They nail him with metal he created to a tree that he spoke into existence. And all the while he was able at any moment to stop it. Remember when Peter cuts the soldier's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus puts it back and says, Peter, put away your sword, and he heals the soldier? He says, at that moment, Peter and my disciples, at that moment I could have legions of soldiers coming to my rescue. No one is taking my life. I am laying it down humbly. Now why did God do this? Glenn said it in the beginning of the service in 1 Peter 3, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to to God. Jesus lived to die to bring you to God. And verse 9 says that he was exalted. If you're here today, and you don't know this exalted Jesus. He is the Savior of the world who is worthy of our worship. In Paul's day, the greatest name was Nero. Nero was the greatest name, and he was ruling Rome, the greatest empire on the planet Earth. Philippi was a Roman city and had at its practice at this time, at every public event, everyone would bow their knee would bow down to Nero, declaiming him as Lord. They'd raise their voices to Nero. But Paul says in verse 9 and 10 that there is a name beyond that name. That a man lived beyond that man. That at the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every name will bow down on earth and in heaven, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even Nero one day will bow down to Jesus and raise his voice to Christ. The question this morning is not whether you and I will bend our knee to Jesus. The Bible tells us that all will bend our knee to Jesus one day, confessing him as Lord. The question is this morning, if you don't know him, will you bow down today for salvation as a friend of Jesus? Or will you do it on the last day as an enemy, defeated in your pride that God so vehemently opposes? See, the Bible says that all of us have sinned. You have sinned. I have sinned. None of us are righteous, but we become proud, right? We become proud trying to live our lives our own way, without Him, independently, pridefully, and because of that, our ho- a holy God who created the universe could not let us live in his presence for eternity. Yet Jesus, who we've been talking about all morning, the very Son of God, lived to die as the perfect sacrifice in his death on the cross. The Bible says that one must turn from our sins, turn from our 
pride and independence and believe unto him. Believe unto Christ. So I encourage you to submit to the love of Christ today. If you don't know him, I encourage you to embrace Christ, the man who became small so that you could become big in God's eyes. So humble yourself. Martin Luther has said that when we believe in Christ, when we turn to him, a great exchange happens. That all of my sin goes unto Jesus and all of his perfection goes unto me. That my condemnation goes unto Jesus and, my, and his salvation comes to me. That my separation from God goes to Jesus and his reconciliation to God is given to me. My pride is laid on Jesus and his humility is laid on me. And the wrath of God is placed on Jesus. So when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken so that we would never be. He took the death that we deserved and gave us the life that we never deserved. It's overwhelming to consider this and to consider how wicked and proud I am and how good and humble Jesus is. He was humble in his death. So we see that Christ was humble in his life. And we see that Christ was humble in his death. Now finally, we see our humble response. Our humble response. So look back now at verse 1, 1 through 5. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Paul's purpose in this passage is not merely to detail the humiliation of Christ, but to use it as an illustration not only as what we are to believe, but how we are to live. Verse 5 points that out, right? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, have the mind of Christ. This means to be selfless, to consider others as more important than yourself. We are to imitate Christ. This morning, as you reflect on verses 6 through 11, does your attitude reflect that of Christ Jesus? Do you have a humble response to others? Do you consider others' interests above your own? Well, let's consider briefly a few areas in our lives. How are we at home? How are you at home after a long day of work? Do you come home looking for your interests to be served? Or after a long day looking after the kids, do you wait for your spouse to come home so you can instantly get your interests served? Or in humility, considering others as more important 
Do you encourage them? Do you sacrifice for them? Do you model Christ-like humility? But what about at work? You consider your boss's interests as more important than your own. Do you seek to make him or her look good by the quality of work that you do? Or are you always competing with others to gain approval or gain status or gain a promotion or gain more money? Are you even concerned for your coworkers who maybe are struggling with their jobs or struggling personally? Perhaps rather than trying to promote our own interests at work, we had to try helping others. We had to see our job as an opportunity to consider others' interests as more important as your own and model what Christ did in humility for us. What about when we go about our normal daily activities, perhaps when we go out to eat or we go out to shop? When you're at a restaurant, do you find yourself complaining about the bad service and how you've had to wait a few extra minutes for your food? Perhaps you even show your anger and complain how the service is so much worse than it is for you back at home and you feel like you deserve better. What if instead we were concerned about our server, who's likely away from him or her, her family back home, maybe has children that she hasn't, or he hasn't seen for some time? What would it look like to consider their interests at that moment as more important than our own? To see them through God's eyes, to see them as one who needs the love of Jesus. Oh, I confess my own failing in this just this past week, even as I was preparing the sermon, Gloria and I were coming back from Murdoch City Center as it was closing, and we were driving out front at about 10 p.m., and we saw dozens and dozens of vans and buses and hundreds of employees from the mall all walking out at the same time to get onto their bus. And I remember thinking, I think I even proclaimed it to Gloria, how frustrating it is to, to sit in traffic for two extra minutes because all these people were crossing the road. Then I ran across a quote that same night from C.S. Lewis where he says, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, though it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. There are no ordinary people. You have never in your life talked to a mere mortal. But it is immortals that we joke with, it's immortals that we work with, immortals that we marry, snub, and exploit, or meet at a restaurant or a shopping mall. Instead of ignoring people who we typically ignore, we have to remind ourselves that this is a person who has an eternal soul and they'll live for all eternity in heaven with Jesus or apart from him. Jesus is worthy of this person's worship in the same way as he is worthy of yours. Well, what about when people criticize you? Can you consider their interests as more important than your own? Or are you angry or bitter? Remember that in light of God's judgment for you on the cross, you can deal with criticism. For no one can criticize you more than the cross already has. 
No one can criticize you more than the cross already has. That your sin is so rampant, so profuse, that it required the death of the Son of God to atone for you. Instead, be intentional about seeing how God is working in those that frustrate us and encourage them. Be thankful that God has made them in His image. And finally, what about people who gossip you, gossip about you, or proclaim false things? Certainly Jesus dealt with this during his ministry and his life on the earth. Even then, do you consider their interests above your own? Do you care more about yourself and your reputation, that you do whatever it takes to clear your name, even at the expense of theirs? Perhaps instead, we would be good to trust our personal public relations department to God and trust Him to repair it for us. For the Bible tells us that it's the humble man, that it's the humble woman who God will exalt in the end and use for greatness. In closing, you will, in fact, you will be miserable if you live for the glory of your own name. We'll be miserable as a church if we live for the glory of our name. We need to understand that we, this morning, as we humbly approach the cross, that we are a bunch of nobodies who a somebody came to save. All of us are sinners. All of us are a mess. All of us are in need of grace. So may we today and from this day forth, may we live humble lives of joy and may God exalt us as we pursue the attitude of Christ. Well, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, would you help us this day to meditate on the glory of the cross? Would we rejoice in the salvation you have given us in the humiliation of Christ on the cross? May we never cease to be startled at the humility of Jesus in his life and in his death. And may we have an attitude that would model Christ. Would we consider others' interests as more important than ourselves? Would we be a church that humbly exalts your name and may you spread your name in this land. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.